Hello, everyone. Thanks very much for coming to this um, panel on literary translation. Can everyone hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're just going to have a conversation. Um, the title of the panel is The Beauty and Chaos of um, Translation. And so, um, as we know, without translation, the world would have uh, no literature, no world literature. Um, it has always played a pivotal role in renewing language across cultures and uh, renewing thoughts and ideas. And we'll talk some about that. I'll just wait for some people to sit if they want to find. So I, I've worked at uh, a press in um, the United States called New Directions Publishing. That's um, for almost 20 years now. And we just learned last night that the Hungarian writer Laszlo Krasnohorkai um, won the National Book Award for translation. And uh, yeah, we're excited about that. And um, that award has only been around for this is the second year. Uh, and so you could see kind of how literary translation has become, at least in that sense, um, more popular in certain ways. But I just wanted to start with what he, what, something he said uh, last night. And he, uh, he was there for, um, Krasnohorka was there to accept the award. And he said, it is a tremendous joy that through our translators, we can cross these heavy borders. And so this idea of crossing heavy borders is something that we'll talk about as well. And so I'm just going to introduce um, our panelists a little bit, and then, um, yeah, we'll go from there. And at the end, if you want to um, ask some questions, um, you can think of some, and we'll save some time for that at the end of the panel. So to my immediate left is Tiffany Tsao. She is a novelist and literary translator, born in San Diego, where I was born too. <laughs> and grew up in uh, Singapore and Indonesia, mostly. Um, she currently lives in Sydney, Australia. Um, her two novels, I think two novels, no, no, wait. Her, uh, she's the author of the novel, Under Your Wings, but in the US, it's coming out as, with a different title, The Majesties, correct? So you don't even have to translate to have a different title in a different country, um, as well as a, as a fantasy series that she writes. Um, she translates from Indonesian to English um, and has translated Norman Erickson Pasaribu's poetry collection. Who is here? Oh, great. Yeah, and all of these translators uh, here are involved with, uh, worked with in some way, an author who is here at the festival too, so they'll be at those events as well. Um, she's also translated Sergius Seeks Bacchus, uh, D. Lestari's novel Paper Boats, and Lakshmi Patmujak's The Bird Woman Palette. Uh, next to her is Jennifer Konove, who I've known for probably almost 20 years too, <laughs> um, through a magazine that she founded with another um, person called Circumference. And it was, uh, or it still is, um, but it was one of the first, I think, really um, new literary magazines that focused solely on translation and poetry. Um, she's the author of two really great poetry collections called The Wug Test and A Wayward. And she translated uh, a book, co-translated a book by um, the Chinese writer Liu Xia, who is a poet and visual artist. 
that came out uh, in 2015, and um, as well as the British Yiddish writer Cecilia Dropkin. Um, Jenny grew up in New York, and she currently lives in Berlin. And next to Jennifer is Fami Mustafa, uh, a local hero. <laughs> so maybe I don't even have to introduce. So, uh, so a Malaysian fiction writer and translator and visual artist, born in Terengganu, but based here in Penang. Um, he was formerly a lecturer in biology, correct? And, and has recently-ish um, switched full-time to writing and translating. And uh, his most recent uh, translation is uh, Hannah Alkaf's novel, um, The Weight of Our Sky, which is translated as Di Situ Langit Dijunjung. Is that correct? Yeah. And <laughs> since people here would know. And, uh, <laughs> and next to him is Adriana Norden, Adriana Norden Madan, uh, who is a writer, playwright, translator, and a policy researcher. She is born and raised and still lives in Kuala Lumpur, correct? And um, she recently translated a story by Lokman Hakim. Um, called Pengap, which I think means kind of like stuffy, is that correct? And um, it's the first story in Malay to have been shortlisted for this prize, right? And um, yes, yeah, so we have a wonderful panel here to talk about translation. So I thought I'd just start um, by asking as a way of each translator here to introduce themselves in a way, just to say a little bit about how they started uh, translating and, and how and why. Do you, Sure. Um, thank you, everyone. So my story about translating, um, honest to goodness story, is uh, four years ago. I didn't want to continue at the job I was doing. And I had thought about uh, doing translating. So I went and took a translation certificate from the National Books and Translation Institute in Malaysia, or ITBM, as Malaysians might know, the acronym in Malay. And uh, then I continued, and I became a freelance translator, somebody I am till this day. And in terms of my foray, let's say, into literary translation. It was something that I had always liked because I identify as a writer, a playwright in progress as well. So I enjoy literature. And the opportunity came uh, when I was approached by the Commonwealth Foundation, Commonwealth Writers, who was organizing the, they were organizing the Commonwealth Short Story Prize. And they were looking for a translator because I believe last year was the first year that you could submit entries in Malay. And so they were looking for a translator and by chance, uh, they got in touch with me, and I guess the rest is history. Hi, I'm Fami. So thank you for the question, and thank you for attending. I thought that everyone is having a nap or something, but <laughs> congratulations for coming. My, my, <laughs> my first exposure in translation happens when I was very young for my mother and my sister. Uh, I began to learn that if my mother say yes, it means no. And if she says no, means I couldn't do it. And the second time I learned translation is from my sister. We love to gossip. And she said that if my mother doesn't like the gas from the house, she's going to give the cold water. So because the gas just going to, you know, go. And if she likes the person, she give it hot water so that the guests wait for the water to become cold, so they got to spend much time. So 
I, I haven't thought it's a form of translation until I was old enough that, oh, you can translate words certain way. And that's what happened. Uh, it's very confusing for me because before this, I used to translate scientific journals from English to Malay and Malay to English, and it was very direct. It wasn't like my mother. And when, when I translate poetry now, I became more and more like my mother, that the most important thing you have is to be essential about it and to be simple about it. I mean, the word yes and no can mean so many things. And when I, the latest uh, translation I did with Mustakim, he's here. Uh, we, uh, we translate Maya Angelou, Ellen Ginsberg, and, and Sylvia Plath, and it was very hauntingly beautiful and confusing, and I like that chaos. So that, that's how I, I involve in, in translation. Thank you. Um, I learned a language just so I could translate from it, because that's how I studied Yiddish, because I wanted to hear the voices of my grandparents think that the language they spoke that wasn't passed down to me. Um, and I thought if I could translate this poetry, then I would hear sort of a voice of my past that I lost. And so I studied Yiddish, and then I found this poet who I wanted to translate. And of course, she sounds nothing like me, or nothing like I would imagine my grandparents sounded like. And it took me, I translated with two friends. And at first, I was like, I hate this poetry. It's out of control. It was just really like, she was, uh, Celia Dropkin was this mother, she had six kids, but her and her poems are over-the-top sexual, vampires, blood-sucking, like amazing stuff that was written in the teens and the 20s in New York, the only female member of this all-male writing group, uh, an immigrant. And I was like, this is disgusting. And then working on it for 13 years, I was like, oh no, this is what life is like. So I feel like I grew up with Celia Dropkin and she was my Yiddish, she is my Yiddish and my language. And so it was really like a love affair with this poet just through this one language. Um, I just forgot to add too, um, as, uh, the other, another hat that Jenny wears still, uh, she just re or, or just launched a books um, series with circumference and translated or published uh, Pauline Tan's translation of Kule Grassi's um, Tell Me Can You Know, who, um, who is also here and will be performing and reading. <laughs> okay, um, so in a similar way, my story of how I got started translating is a story of reconnection. Um, so I grew up in Singapore and Indonesia. My family is actually um, Chinese Indonesian, but um, my family, even though they spoke Indonesian around the house, they didn't really emphasize that part of my heritage or put an emphasis on me speaking Bahasa Indonesia all that much. Um, and it was only when I got to grad school, um, when I was doing my PhD at UC Berkeley, that um, I began getting more interested in um, reading Indonesian literature. So I began reading more Indonesian um, books and also you know, kind of looking at the translations. And this is, this is gonna sound really um, big-headed, but I kind of would read the translations and I would think, I feel like it could be translated better so that more people are interested in um, Indonesian authors. So um, that was sort of the kernel of that. And then um, gradually, a few years afterwards, I began trying my hand at translation. Um, I joined the volunteer editorial staff of a translation quarterly called Asymptote. Um, and then from there, I just, um, I guess, began translating. So yeah. No, thanks. Um, so I guess I'll start with asking, um, since this 
panel is titled Beauty or Chaos. Um, if how you approach your approach to translation, do you find it um, more, is it easier for you to translate beauty or chaos or, or do you even think about that in a way through, uh, about translation? My approach to translation and how I, my experience with the beauty or the chaos of it, is that the question? Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. So I think uh, what I find about translating um, from Malay to English specifically is uh, the first time, the, the, the first time I, I, I translate it, it sounds very convoluted unnecessarily. And I think that's just because of the language structure, correct? Um, and I think, I mean, Bahasa Malay is, is a very, very beautiful language. And uh, I try trying to capture that sometimes. I feel that the big part of the beauty is in the expressions, or like the Peribahasa or even the Simpla Bahasa, certain things. Just for example, if someone wanted to say that the land that they're on is very small, the word in Malay is a kankankara. And for me, that means like it's a monkey's jump, like as, as wide as a monkey's jump kind of, or like yeah, when their legs are outstretched. So I think that kind of beauty that I try um, when translating it to English, sometimes I, I worry about whether I can convey it or not. But I've found that my personal philosophy is maybe I'm a translator who I want people to know that it's a translation. I maybe not necessarily want it to sound like it was written in English. Like I do want to use like the Malay expressions, for example. I um, mean, in terms of the chaos, well, I, I think for now, when I think about it, I definitely think more of the beauty because Malay, I know that it has its, you know, like no genders. And sometimes the expressions can be a bit uh, like convoluted if, if it's uh, translated to English at the first line. Um, but I just give it a go. I, I really like this morning, Harry Eveling, he's, he answered in terms of, he said young translators always ask, can we do this? Can we do this in our translation? And I really like his line. I feel like it's something I needed to hear. He said, siapa malarang, like nobody really is really prohibiting you. So you can have your own philosophy. So I'm, a, I'm definitely a work in progress. But that's my approach for translation. Uh, talking about chaos, what, what I think during uh, when, when I get a text and I have to translate it, especially I translated it from Malay to English, and we have to understand that Malay speaks differently even among themselves. For example, like if you live by the shore like me, it sounds like singing because it replicates the sounds of wave. And if it's the Malay and the city, they give the direct uh, uh, way of speaking because that's how they were brought up to. And English, because uh, it's, it's a different thing. For example, in terms of the literary context, like what Adriana said about monkey and sekangkangkura, and in terms of the lifestyle context uh, and dialect, for example, uh, my family used to say, if you're a good person, uh, she, she, was, she was describing how, how beautiful she is as a wife and obedient. I'm sorry for the gender role, but it is. She said that uh, she's so obedient that her husband always get drinks at his feet. If you translate it directly, in Malay, it calls that, oh, aku baik sungguh, ai sapakaki. Or, in a, in a more formal Malay, that, Saya sangat baik, ai sehingga sampai ke kaki. It means that the drinks serve not on the feet, but next to you. So that's the context that I find it the beauty of the chaos because more than translating it, I learned about the culture itself and 
that's the, the, the translation that I'm really interested in, in, in essentialism of it. So can I ask, uh, just when you um, are talking about, it sounded like the difference between a kind of city Malay versus yeah, yeah. a shore. A rhythm, is it like uh, syntactical? Yeah, it's, the, uh, it's some, some ethnographic of it. If, if, it's, if we live by the shore, and the descendant live by the shore, the way they speak is a bit wavy. It's because they're replicating the wave. But in the Malay, in the city, they're very direct because that's how their lifestyle is. So it's representing their habitat and their relationship with it. So I find it chaos but beautiful in, in translation, having to learn that. But how do you find that related to, the, to English? Like that, those ideas? Uh, you can and you shouldn't. Bring... That's a mystery of it. Yeah. Um, there's a great Anne Carson essay on translation where she talks about, in language, we have these, this choice often between chaos and cliche, and translation offers a third way out of that. And I think that can be the problem with trying to translate beauty, is that beauty in some languages and cultures reads as cliche in others. So as an editor and as a translator, I'm thinking, how does this sound to an American ear? And so working with Pauline's amazing translation that she sent me of Kulagrassi's poems, there are a lot of rainbows in it. And rainbows are, prob are probably beautiful, but in English, they're not. And every time I saw the word rainbow, I thought, I mean, I grew up before the connotation of the rainbow flag, where rainbows were just like cartoon happiness, like truck stop things with your name Jennifer on it would have a rainbow like this is 70s my 70s childhood the word rainbow it's like elbow but for a rainbow it's not a nice word and I kept seeing it I was like oh gosh so I said Pauline there's too many rainbows in this and then like too much rainbows not beautiful and then I went to Ireland and I, there are so many rainbows in Ireland maybe everyone knows this but they're really beautiful and I kept thinking these are so beautiful I, maybe I was wrong, and I was in a parking lot with my family looking at this beautiful rainbow, and some woman was like, are you guys okay, because there were cars, and I was like, look at that rainbow, and she just gave me this face, like, and I remembered the face exactly, it was from a lecture I went to in college with this very famous art historian, and she gave this lecture on art history, and then this, like, undergrad guy was like, what about beauty? And Rosalind Krauss, the historian, just looks at him and goes, beauty schmoody. And I think that's what the face in the, of the woman in the parking lot was like, rainbow, rainbow, beauty schmoody. And I think like there's this balance between what's beautiful and what's beauty schmoody. So I got back to Berlin, and I was still thinking, should I write to Pauline and be like, rainbows are fine, they can exist in English, or... <laughs> And I was there in. I was taking some pictures that day, and there's a placard in the middle of Berlin that has a list of all the concentration camps. And I was taking a picture of it, and then this huge rainbow appeared behind it. And I was like, "This is horrible! Like this photograph, it's disgusting and beautiful." And so I didn't write to Pauline. She found an amazing solution, which I won't ruin. You have to buy the book to see it. Oh, I feel like you have to but I think that beauty is harder in some ways. It can come across as cliche in another language. What in one, whereas chaos, its language breaks in every language breaks. So I think that that can be easier to translate. I think you're gonna have to share how you solve the issue. I can solve it. Or how well, much? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's sort of a cliffhanger. Maybe in the question. I was like, did you keep the rainbows? Um, and I, I kind of almost have a quasi-personal emotional investment in it because um, there's a poem in uh, Norman's poetry collection, Bacchus, uh, Mencari Bacchus, which has um, like a, rain, a rainbow in it. And But the poem itself is quite sad. It's about um, a transgender person named uh, Christy. And um, I guess you find out something tragic happens. And I remember when I translated the poem and I submitted it, um, the English version, to a, a journal, to a Cordite um, poetry journal. And the editorial feedback I got back was, this seems a bit cheesy, right? Um, and the, sorry, the title of the poem is Making Instant Noodles, or Cooking Instant Noodles at the End of the Rainbow. And, and so Norman and I had this conversation. And in the end, we actually decided to we still wanted the cheesy, but we kind of wanted to reclaim it, and we kind of thought about it in the way of, you know, um, that that you know the I guess the gay movement in the West and the LGBT plus QI plus movement in the West sort of has has embraced that cheesiness, right? Somewhere over the rainbow, and I think we wanted to sort of embrace it. So we actually even in the last two lines, which um, the editor said, do you do you think you should cut this? We actually added exclamation marks. Um, because we were like, no, let's let's you know go the whole hog in the sense, yeah. Great. Sorry, I just evaded your question. <laughs> no, that was purposeful. I was about to, was about to uh, ask you about that. But do you want to expand on that? Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, um, for for me, I guess it, it is a hard question because to me, the chaos and beauty, like yeah. they're not. Um, mutually exclusive and right. sometimes yeah. they bleed into each other. Right. So actually, um, I, I actually feel most at home translating when I'm translating something emotionally chaotic because uh -huh. um, I tend to be quite an empath. Right. So I really get quite affected by the translations I do. So when I do them um, and when they're emotionally chaotic, I, I almost feel like it produces a better result even though it's not good for my mental and emotional health. I mean, some of you have already brought this up, but I thought, I mean, it's a good way to talk about some of the um, some of the more naughtier or difficulties you're faced with. I mean, with I mean, I, I imagine a lot of people here are um, write and translate as well. With with translation, we have a text to work with already. Um, and so, what are some of the um, difficulties, uh, and how do you kind of solve solve some of these naughtier places when you're translating something? Um, oh, okay. If, Jenny, you want to start? Or, yeah. <laughs> or, or Tiffany, you said you wanted to read some of the read some of a poem and, and talk about that as as a way too. You could do that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The poem is short, um, but when um, Jeffrey asked about you know oh the knots, I guess you try to untangle during translation it made me think of it. And this is the um, poem that forms the poetry collection's title, uh, Sergius Seeks Bacchus. Um, Snake-like, you shed your short-lived skin and commence slash continue on your quest. Now the light from on high passes through you. You're luminous. Meanwhile, out west, in decrepit Rome sits Galerius, oblivious his end is nigh. You seek your beloved. He appeared to you in your cell his body glowing silver as he whispered, endure, for I will always watch over you. With him you'll rise up to heaven and wonder at how familiar it all feels. 
Hand in hand, you two will stroll the streets, introducing one another to everyone you meet. And um, it takes its title from uh, the two um, saints, Sergius and Bacchus, who actually have been um, made icons of the gay community. Um, so they're actually Christian martyrs who were beheaded for their faith. Um, but um, so this is about you know Sergius and and um, I guess the, the ghost of one coming to the other. But um, in that you'll notice there was a lot of there was some rhyme, and in the original actually the rhyming is much more um, it's it's stronger right and and I think Indonesian's a little bit like Italian in that there's a lot more rhyme um, like things rhyme easier maybe because there's more um, vowels at the end or. Um, I don't know, it's just the, the, the way the words work. But in English, often rhyme, too much rhyme can come across as doggerel. People think it's cheesy. People think it's, you know, like, oh, this is just pretending to be poetry, especially, you know, now, unless you're like you're in the Victorian age or something. So um, it was a matter of wanting to keep that rhythm and that beauty and that rhyme without doing it in a cheesy way. So I had to be a bit more, um, we had to be a bit more cunning with where we place them and to have near rhymes rather than um, exact rhymes. Mm -hmm. So that was just yeah. something that I think a lot about. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think the difficulty, as you said, what you're saying, and for me has been, is something that sounds amazing in the original that if you translated it too closely wouldn't sound good in, mm -hmm. in English. Um, and it's not finding the equivalent, it's like, um, in terms of meaning. It's finding the equivalent in terms of impact. And, um, and I think for translators, that finding that equivalent can feel like writing. And that feels a little bit dangerous because you're trying to serve this text, but you're also rewriting it. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, the thing that's helped me most with translation is giving myself and finding people who will give me the permission to take those kinds of, to stray in a loyal way. Um, and I thought I'd just read this amazing quote by a translator I admire, Rosemary Waldrop, mm -hmm. about her process. Who's an American poet. I, she's, yeah, a German-born American poet who writes in English and translates from German. As I read the original work, I admire it. I'm overwhelmed. I would like to have written it. Clearly, I'm envious, envious enough to make it mine at all cost, at the cost of destroying it. Worse, I take pleasure in destroying the work, exactly because it means making it mine. And I soothe what guilt I might feel by promising that I will make reparation, that I will labor to restore the destroyed beauty in my language. Also, of course, by the knowledge that I do not actually touch the original within its own language. So I think this like destructive creative force can feel um, like you're cheating or stealing, but it's part of that, that process that's the difficulty that I, I deal with. Uh, uh, now, uh, personally, this is dealing from my personal experience. I have to. Uh, I was offered to translate this uh, beautiful debut novel, the, the Weight of Our Sky, and it's about the racial riot in '69 in Malaysia. It's so bad. Uh, I feel so good translating it. I feel so bad translating it. Uh, especially when it comes to the cursing words, and it's not only cursing words, I, I, I love cursing, but it's more than that, it's a racial tension and discrimination, the, the word equals to the N word, and how do you translate that? And if you can translate that, should you translate that? And it takes my mind quite a few often, should I, should I 
translated it and having the guilt of propagate it, or should I stick to the the aesthetic of describing what really happened during that time? And I guess at the end of the day, there is no apologies that I'm trying to uh, make a documentation, a literary documentation of what really happened. So I, I go out with it. So that's kind of the difficulty that I don't like, but I can't. I actually don't mind having it because it tests you as 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 a translator. I mean, it's. it's uh, but what did you do with the curse words? I curse. So, <laughs> it's just in a different so, language. Yeah, yeah and yeah. and it feels so good having to do that because you become honest with it, and then you believe that people take it contextually, describing about what happened before, and. If I have to do it, I'll do it again. Sadly, <laughs> but yeah, it's good. <laughs> For me, actually, it's um, it's very interesting how this panel really coincides with. I'm in a I'm in a time of the year where I'm reading quite a lot of short stories in in Malay, with the ultimate aim eventually for translation, and I think one thing that. Um, challenges me uh, in translating is the very familial terms that people who are not biologically related in Malaysia use for one another, just denoting hierarchy maybe of age and respect. So uh, example, the biggest example that's kind of occupying my mind now is pa, pa or ma, which um, doesn't mean they're related to you. They could be like uh, the village head or somebody that you, somebody in your family but not necessarily biologically related, for example, or in your community. So when I translated Pengap last year, there is, a, there is a character, he's a pa, so an older man, pa Ajis is his name. And I know that he's not related to the other characters in the story. So I translated it because I wanted to also convey the, I didn't want to just write pa because I felt like he didn't really convey what it, who he was or the, the language, the vernacular in that community in English. So I called it old man Ajis. Like I changed pa to, mean, to say old man, so old man Ajis. Um, and I was very pleased with myself, actually. I was like, yay, okay, good, you did this. And uh, everything turned out well for, for Pengap, I would say. Uh, but then in this new batch of stories that I read, um, that, I, yeah, that I read, there is again a character, a part character. Uh, oh no, in this, in this example, it's a mark character, so a female version. And uh, the, only, the thing that hit me is that then there is, uh, there is an example where they address the lady directly. So in Pengap, in the short story I translated before, they, they talk about this person in the, in the, in the third uh, person. So now, then it hit me, like, how would you, would I say old, if, if I were talking to this old man, Ajis, would I call him old man Ajis? Like, I don't think, like, you know, you, maybe when you talk about him, you'd say, like, yeah, old man Ajis. Mm -hmm. But when you address him, like, can you say, hey, old man Ajis, here I am, you know? It, it just doesn't <laughs> sound right. So I would, yeah, so that's really occupying my mind. If anybody has any ideas after this panel, just to be like, what, should, 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 I, should I call him Mr. Ajis? Yeah, I guess the, the familial, the very, uh, the very familial sense of like the way you call people who are not necessarily related to you is very fascinating in Malay. And sometimes I try to translate, like I, yeah, and that's yeah, that's in my mind. How should I translate? Pa, yeah. the shortest of words I feel. No, it's the same with Chinese with kinship names and family names. And how do you, what are the you know? Because you can't just keep saying this in English. Like it just gets so confusing. Yeah, actually, so I, I have similar problems because Indonesian has the same problems, right? Um, and actually, part of me, because I grew up, grew up addressing older people by, you know, a, a formal name, or at least uncle, auntie, you know, if they're close. And actually, part of me is like, yeah, I think you know, American English needs more respect. They should, you know, like I'll keep all, I'll keep the misters and the misses and the aunties and the uncles. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It's it's also about thinking like, 
how can my translation also widen what's expected, I guess? And uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I got really excited. Sorry. No, no, that's great. I mean, I think since we're here, I mean, I, I, w I would like to hear more about the relationship between Malay and English and some of the things that you are working with between those languages, since I think people here would find that um, helpful and interesting as well. I mean, uh, for both, I mean, just for a, a moment, if that's okay with. Um, an experience that's really humbling me, I must say, in terms of literary translation from Malay to English, is how much I don't know about Malay, actually, the regional variants. Um, like I said, I'm born and raised in, in KL, so I have a very KL way of speaking Malay. So in these short stories that I've read, there are some that use references, they're from Sabah or Sarawak, where it seemed uh, like an anthropological class for me, actually, intro, intro, uh, introduction to these cultures. So I think the, uh, wh what I grapple with is sometimes just not having the vocabulary, really. And um, it's something I used to think that, you know, the translator must be the expert, right? Must know everything at the tip of the fingers, must be, uh, as they say in Malay, must be an ahli in the, in the language. But I, it's very humbling to find that I don't, like, I, I, I'm a translator and I don't know much. And so sometimes, um, because again, like in, in Malay, there are, I've read short stories that have a bit of uh, the language, um, I think the Sulu language, and then there's some that use, even like the Tranganu, like where Fami is from, that kind of, Malay, that, that variant of Malay, I don't understand. Um, Sabah and in Sarawak, there's the, the, their Malays, I don't understand. So I think it really takes just extra, extra work, extra research, and making maybe a mental note of people that you can ask for help from, um, for Malay. Um, writing in the future for Malay, because Malay doesn't have tenses, right? So I've, I caught myself after a while translating from English. Um, I would use akan, which is, means like will. And I use it too much, and I was like, Adana, you just need to calm down. Malay is not English, you don't have to, you know, like people understand. It's, it's one of those languages where people can understand the context. Um, so you don't have to like over-translate. Sometimes I feel where it becomes a bit clumsy and clunky. Um, yeah, so those, those are the things that, that, that I've had to, had to grapple with. Oh, and one more um, is, uh, yes, the translation of food. Somebody told me uh, uh, many, many years ago uh, that you shouldn't translate food. Like, just leave it as is, you know. Well, can, you, can you do it for, for, for example, people like me who don't yeah, know Yeah, for example, <laughs> so uh, in, 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 in the Pengap, uh, the uh -huh. short story, Lokman Hakim short story, there's a mention of roti jala. So I googled and I was like, oh, what do you call that in English? So I call it net crepes. So net, like a net, like a fisherman's net, net crepes. And then in hindsight, I think about it and I'm like, oh, I don't know, uh, should have just... Oh, wait, can you back up? Net, yeah, net... Crepes, crepes, French crepes. Crepes, oh. crepes, crepes. Right, 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 right. Yeah, right. so um, in hindsight, I wish I hadn't translated it, actually. I wish I had just left it at roti jala and just claimed the, the ubiquitousness of like food names in Malay. Uh -huh. um, yeah, so that's things that I can remember that have ch been oh, challenging great. for me. Yeah. I mean, what about when you're translating... Um, you're translating poetry into Malay, English poetry into Malay as well. I mean, we talked a little bit about the rhymes and, and things, but but is there, do you go both ways as well, or are you kind of, what's the? Yeah, there's a different momentum between yeah. uh, English poetry to Malay poetry, uh, English novel yeah. to Malay novel. Uh -huh. mm, now, when I translate English novel, uh, what I do first is just, I translate it normally, and put some context to it. And after that, I analyze it and restructure it back. I feel like a fraud, and I like that. Having said that, it means that you steal something. It's not original. You steal something, and you have to put it into not only Malay language, 
but into Malay language, language mm -hmm. it means it looks nice, it looks smooth, but you can actually, you can't have that much freedom in poetry because you have to be economical in terms of the length of the poems and the choices of word. And for some very strange, beautiful, chaotic reasons, when I translate from English to Malay poetry, I always inclines to make it rhyme. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I right. just blame genetics to it. It's so easy to blame gene. <laughs> so I just blame my genetic. But when, when you translate from English to Malay, you incline to make it has certain sort of rhymes, yeah, probably right. because you're exposed to that speaking and, uh -huh. and reading text. So I, I found the, the momentum of translating English novels and poetry, it's, it's quite entertaining and humbling experience okay. for me. Yeah, great. Um, someone had a question. Um, so many translators are, when they approach um, a certain project uh, or work, they try and think of models of, of of previous translations um, or strategies as a way to approach um, their own translation. Do, do you often find yourself doing that as well? Um, I, I guess I'll start with Or even when, I mean, since you were, you were translating Liu Xia, I mean, was, was there something, this Chinese poet uh, and artist, was there I mean, something? In some ways in, that know, was, because she's contemporary, there's right. a closeness to that, even though Yiddish is closer to English. I think translating that felt smoother in a lot of ways because it's like we're sharing the same world in a lot of And also I was living in China when I translated, so maybe I felt like right. I see this world um, where some, somehow it feels really difficult to get into the mind of the past. So I think that's where the models come in because they're like, how are people thinking then? And how would this have sounded then? Like with um, Silly Dropkin, we read a lot of reviews because we're like, did this sound outrageous then? Or did it, and we read reviews and everyone hated her work. I mean, it was like all of these horrible sex, totally sexist reviews based just completely on her gender. Um, and it was just very clear. So, okay, she really got under people's skin. We should get under people's skin, you know? And um, in that way, I think, I mean, I think it's hard with, I think there was a year we, that I was on a jury for the Best Translated Book of the Year Award, and um, I noticed that the things that people were tending to like were things that sounded like they could have been written in English, mm -hmm. and that tends to be the things that I don't like um, as much as things that seem like they were written in another language and translated. So I think that, that those are the different kinds of models I'm always looking for, is like how can this appeal to an American reader but also not seem like it was written by an American now. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there are really good models of that, right. but they're harder to find. Great, yeah. Um, I feel like maybe not necessarily a model. I, I guess it's because um, in a past life I was an academic, mm -hmm. and now, um, and then I, I, um, I call myself now a recovering academic or a lapsed academic, but um, there's something about theory now that makes me a bit upset because I feel like translation, especially if you're translating a person who's alive, is actually a very intimate process and it's a process where I think you can actually 
um, change, you know, the power dynamics between English and different languages, you know, especially now since English is has such a hegemony, right, in the world. Um, and so I've actually sort of started eschewing models. Like, I mean, there are translations that I read and I love, but I, you know, I'm not in a good position to judge the original necessarily, not if they're not in Indonesian, right, because I don't know the okay. original okay. language. So I feel like for me, a lot of it stems from conversations with the author and also the, the genre and where I, what I see the work doing, yeah. Um, I guess. Yeah, so for example, um, I've translated a book called Paper Boats, and that's much more, I guess, um, popular fiction, and it's like a fun, it's a fun book. Right? So how did you choose uh, to, to, to translate that? Um, so that one, it's funny, I, I was kind of doing research for my agent who at, this, at the time was um, going to Frankfurt Book Fair the year that um, Indonesia was the guest of honor there, so that was 2015. And she said, oh, why don't you do a bit of research on some writers that you think I should get in touch with? And so I translated some samples, and then she's like, oh, this is great. So how about if we represent her, you want, you know, do you want to translate her? And I was like, uh, yes, sure, you know, because it's a big gig, um, especially back then. Um, yeah, but you know, like her approach to translation and what she wants to get out of it. She wants more, like a very seamless experience for the English reader, as opposed to say translating Norman, and Norman is a bit more like, well, let's think more about whether we want to, um, I guess, open up different spaces, or whether we want the reader to be completely comfortable, or, you know, because um, also he's, you know, Norman's part of a minority in Indonesia, right? And so then also within the Indonesian context, there's that aspect, right? And also, you know, he's gay, so then there's that aspect as well, right? Um, so all of these things where if you actually translated seamlessly, it would be more, um, I guess, a, a trespass on the, the poetry than to translate it with a few quirks, I guess, yeah. What about as far as like the history of um, literature tra being translated into Malay and Indonesian, um, are you finding, like right now, a particularly uh, fruitful time? I'm just thinking, like in the U.S., there's there's been a lot more literary presses um, that are doing translations. Where 10, 15 years ago, even it wasn't as much as it is now. But uh, right now, compared to other um, other times in the past in Malay translation and Indonesian translation, is it, is it much different now or has it been growing or is it always kind of up and down or is, do you have a sense of, of that history at all? Or? I mean, you mean you mean the, the 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 difference between the old times and the new times? Well, yeah, I guess. Or, I, I'm just trying to get more of the sense of of, of literature being translated into. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be from English, whatever languages into Malay or Indonesian. Uh, is it is is the audience growing? Is it is is yeah. the history of? Uh, yeah. I think I think yeah, we are in an age where where we are talking about the. Uh, nations and culture and identity and in order to do that we need not that we need in order to do that we succumb to find a national narrative and part of the national narrative is a literature and having said that as as people more on the revelations and revolutions and all things are 
being unearthed and opened again, and we can see that the small old pieces not only translated, but we translated it back. For example, the old Malay canon, they not only translated it to Malay, but they translated it again based on the first context. So I see that it's, it's uh, in this age, especially in Malay literature, what they're doing is that they're retranslating back the translated works to find some sort of new powering points that we have missed during the first translation in the process of culturing or finding the national narrative and because literature is, is a part of it. So I see it's coming and I, I hope it's growing. Actually, can you give an example of something that's being retranslated like uh, that? Retranslated, for example, oh. our, our, we called it as the genealogy of the king, which means in Malay called Sejawah Melayu. Like a history. Yeah, history. Yeah. It's part history and part literature and part imagination. We, our, our land loves that and I love it too. And for example, the newly translated of uh, more, more Malay literature, like Hikayat Wajipasa, I newly translated it. Uh, for some reason, because the old Malay, uh, even though it's the Malay language, but the right thing is not in Jawi and it's right. not in Roman, yeah. so it can, you know, there's a glitch in translation and we, we translated it back, it could change the little tiny meanings that give big words. I'm still thinking about your last question. Okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> about models. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that what I am really always interested in is, I guess, the metaphors that translators use to describe their work. And there's this amazing book, This Little Art. Have you read it? It's about translation, and it just goes through. Oh, just bring your mic huh? up. Oh, it goes through yeah. different um, metaphors for translation, and one that she had trying to find a way to describe this really part alchemy, part science, part art process. Um, and one is that talking about how she's really into this sort of jazzer size, not really, but like a Zumba style class <laughs> or dance, like a middle-aged mom gym dance class and how she can't always see the person leading the moves. So she's like copying these dance moves from the person in front of her, but also <laughs> making it her dance and how this is a really good metaphor for translation. <laughs> And she has a bunch more. I mean, like, she talks a lot about making a table in, wait, what's that shipwreck book? Shipwreck book. It's very famous. There's so many. Yeah. <laughs> Moby Dick. Yeah, Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> Thank you. The most famous one. And these great metaphors. And I think that, that that can be one of the only models for translation we really have are these, like, really metaphorical. I mean, I think about translation a lot in terms of kung fu, because I love doing kung fu, and it does feel like this fight sometimes, but also a learning exercise and like a beautiful violence. Um, and then at some point I wrote down this amazing Jerome Rothenberg, oh, Pierre Joris quote about translating. He's an amazing translator. And he said, I read to write. The closest reading I've yet discovered is translation, which is a writing, and thus a circle, hopefully a spiral set in motion. The pleasure of reading combines with the desire to write to engender a third, the work of translation, a sort of energy recycling wonkle engine with its eccentric shaft and its paratricoid curve 
from which also at the best of times shoots the tangents that are the writing of new poems, the latter feeding on and growing out of the energy generated by the reading writing translation engine mixed with what they can induce from the ambient air, i.e. her dailiness, which is the most complicated machine. I'm like trying to, I feel like I need a diagram of it, but I love thinking of these machines that we're making or translation can be dance, it can be a machine, it could be a gym class and I think that's helpful when approaching. Thank you. No, that's great. Yeah. So I was just going to ask one more question, and then um, if, if people want to ask um, some questions after that. So I was just wondering what, um, what either you're working on now as far as transla translating uh, something, or, or if there's something that you dream about translating, uh, you know, something epic, or <laughs> I don't know. Is there a text you've always dreamed about translating or not? Yeah. Um, what I'm working on currently is um, uh, short stories, um, try, uh, translating them from Malay to English. It's currently doing, and um, this is something I don't. I, I'm from Malaysia, so I, I know that the opportunities don't come very often. But the opportunities meaning in translating from Spanish, but I do speak Spanish, so there might be an opportunity. Um, the details aren't firmed up yet, so I can't really say anything about it, but there might be a, an opportunity to do Spanish to Malay translation, so I look forward to that. In terms of uh, what would I really, really like to translate, um, I, I, don't, I don't remember the name, but there's this hikayat by a woman. Is it Siti Zubaida? Hikayat? So, yeah, where she's really, she's really badass. She's, yeah, so I would really like to translate that if it hasn't been translated yet, so I would, yeah. Is there really much like Spanish it. literature? I mean, sorry, uh, I don't know. In Malaysia? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, when, you, uh, because your earlier question, I can't really answer in terms of the levels of translation or the robustness, but I do know that in the past, um, Dewan Bahasa and Pustaka uh, translated um, 100 Years of Solitude, so Cien Años de Soledad, into Malay, so. There you go. That was Spanish translate. <laughs> oh, and also, um, oh, or was it from English? I don't really know. Yeah, was it? Yeah. So. Oh, um, from English. Yeah. From the ah, okay. Yeah. And yeah, also yeah. the the uh, translation institute recently. I think they had a collaboration with maybe the I think the embassy of Venezuela. So I think they did like translation mm -hmm. of, of short stories. Um, that's about it as far as I know. But then again, I'm not an expert necessarily. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. No. Thank you. So there's nothing fancy for me. Uh, I work on two, two projects. One is commercial, one is not very commercial. Uh, the commercial one to pay the bills, I'm translating the reviews from Booking.com. So if you read the reviews from Booking.com, it's from me. That pays the bills, and I love it. That's one project that I do. Like you're collecting it, them? Into it builds in the currency that I like. <laughs> That's what I love. And the second one is the collections of short stories. Uh, short stories from English to Malay. Uh, it's about people and their relationship with, with money and their spending behavior, the whole anthology of it. So I feel very personally attacked, but I love it. It's stories about money and the relationship. So there are two things that I'm working on right now. Makes me very confused, <laughs> but I like to translate poetry more. I like the journey of it and the humbling experience of it. It feels like a trip. And I, I, feel, I like that trippiness when, when, I, when I translate poetry. Um, I'm translating a German poet, Hilda Doman, who she um, left Germany during the war. She's a Jewish 
when she was, she's Jewish, was Jewish, and um, moved to Italy and then to England and then couldn't get a visa to anywhere except, that she could afford to anywhere except the Dominican Republic. So she lived in the Dominican Republic for 14 years and changed her last name to Domin um, out of gratefulness. And her poems are really interesting. They're, they're a lot about exile and um, trying to find home. And they mix German landscape, but then you also have mango trees. And as someone who's moved around a lot, it's interesting to see these different landscapes come together in German. So that's what I'm working on now. Great, yeah. So I'm working on um, three projects, and it's like three. Yeah, it's got me up to here, like brain-wise, especially since I'm an empath, so it's like very stressful for me. I'm like, oh, this one, oh, this one. Um, so the first is um, a novel, a fantasy novel by uh, the Indonesian author uh, Di Lestari or Dewi Lestari, um, and it's just called Aroma Karsa, um, which is like the scent of determination, kind of. Um, and it's it's kind of cool. There's like a evil plant god involved. Um, and are you translating that for a publisher uh, already, um, or are you just doing no, it out just of doing, interest? Just doing yeah. it, well, so our, the my agent, who also represents me as a translator, or not represents her, I see. is sort yeah. of shopping it around. So hopefully yeah. we'll uh, find a publisher. And then I'm translating two short story collections. So I guess we're all translating, or we're translating short story collections. Um, so one is by um, Norman, whose poetry collection I translated too, but it's called um, Cerita Cerita Bahagia Hampir Seluruhnya, or Happy Stories Mostly. Um, and I'm really loving translating it. And then the third one is by this um, Indonesian author who's now 82 um, and has very kindly agreed for me to translate his poem. So we're looking for a publisher for that. Who is that? Um, it's called, his name is Budi Dharma, and the short story collection is called Orang Orang Bloomington, or The People of Bloomington. And it's it's set in Bloomington, Indiana, where he did his graduate studies. So oh. it's sort of a counter gaze. But I'm actually partly worried for that reason that we won't find a publisher because I know like Western publishers tend to like be like, oh, translated literature. So we want something exotic. So it's about Indonesia, right? Mm. And you're like, no, it's actually set in Bloomington, Indiana. But the stories are really cool and creepy and absurd and great. And then I'm sure they'll be like, Nger. but hopefully we'll find a publisher. And hopefully, I think the world is becoming flatter. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's when was it originally published? Uh, published in 1980. Okay. Yeah. 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 Great. No, thank you. So, does anyone have any questions for? Oh, okay. Is there another mic, or should I should I bring this one up? Uh, good afternoon, uh, panelists and moderator. Uh, my name is Jack. My name is Jack. Uh, I'm a poet and also a translator. I mean, young translator. Uh, so many questions, but I think I don't want to be greedy. Just two of it. So recently, I stumbled upon uh, quite a controversial statement. Um, I cannot find the source. But the gist of the, that statement is said, uh, if your reader reads your, read your work, uh, translation work, as a translation, means that translation is a bad translation. So panelists, is that true or otherwise? And my second question is, uh, how far can we innovate? For example, I am from Ipoh. So there's this local specialty, like Fami said, uh, about context and cultural and geography. So there's this dish popular in Ipoh 
called nasi ganja. So if you translate it, it's basically marijuana rice. The context is because when you eat it uh, around in, in uh, lunch, you will get high. <laughs> so how far can we innovate? Like for Adriana... Uh, the, what causes the high? Is it marijuana? No, oh. no, no. Uh, urban legend said that it was cooked, the rice was cooked with uh, marijuana stock, but that's just nonsense. This is just the effect of eating rice during uh, afternoon. So how far can we innovate? And is tra when translation work reads as translation, is it bad or otherwise? Thank you. Anyone want to? No. Well, no, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think pe people are. Con I love reading translations because I like to think that there's an original behind there, and that adds a layer of depth. And then I think, oh, I wonder why. I wonder what this word was in the original, or what this choice meant. And that la adds all of these layers and resonates and echoes, and that's what you want from any book, I think, is layers and resonation and echoing, and, and there's such pleasure in that. And I think um, the person maybe who said that is just thinking of errors or awkwardness, whereas when I, I love realizing that, or thinking about the fact this is translated. There's a ghost here, there's another, like there's a haunting, and that can make things so much more interesting whenever there's a ghost around. It's about the translation, translated word, and the marijuana, right? I'm, I'm trying to. Okay, uh, I haven't think about, when I'm translating it, I never think about, oh, is this going to sound like a translated work or not? Uh, in an ideal world, where we are all forever young and rich, there will be a translated works who doesn't feel like a translation. But any translated work is a translated work, and yes. that is how we should honor it. Like, like uh, what Jenny said, it add depth you bring to your it. mic a little yeah, bit? Yeah, it add depth to it. So there are certain depth and weight to it when you read the translated work and you cherish it more. You cherish the art of it, you cherish the story, and cherish the, the aesthetics of it. And, and I don't think it's a bad thing too. And for example, the food that Arena talked about, that you shouldn't translate that food as it is, like, like net crap into the roti jala, you should stick it to roti jala. Yes. Because we want people to know there are many names of marijuana and they're going to learn that ganja is another name so it enrich the, the knowledge transfer of, of words. Right. Does that answer your, your question? Any other questions? Oh, oh sorry. No, no, it's okay. Um, I think like many things in the world, that sentence could use a bit more nuance, maybe. Like, it might benefit from nuance as that topic that's being said. Because, for example, I'm gonna, I don't remember the name. So maybe if anybody can remind me, you know, that there, there are different strategies, right, for translating. There's domestication, and then there's the other one where you want it to, sorry? Foreignization, thank you very much. So you do that because, for example, let's say somebody says, oh, this translation is not very good. Maybe, I mean, for whatever reason they're thinking that, but maybe you're honoring the, the writer. You know, like you're taking the expressions from their language. Uh, so, yeah, for example, I've um, come to this conclusion if there's the line, menjadi buah mulut, I'm going to say it became the fruit of their mouth. I am going to say it, like, you know, even though it might not really translate English, I am going to say it because I think you want to honor the culture that the writer comes from as well. And, yeah, their expressions, because I think learning different expressions is, is lovely, actually. And about innovation, um, I try to not take so much innovation. I mean, there have been times where I feel like I just want to add a sentence, you know, to explain what it means, but I pull myself back because I also... Try to, I try to understand that, Irana, you're not the author. 
you're the translator, you're the mediator, you're not like the creator. So that's what I try to tell myself. And yeah, I'm perhaps I'm a bit more conservative, but that's the path I choose to tread so far. Yeah. yeah I think a lot too depends on the context of, say, your example too, what they were saying. Like, I mean, some of the most wonderful things in English in translation has, have been just completely far out uh, and, and innovative in ways. But like with your marijuana grass, Oh, right. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you use that in English, it could obviously be confused for the actual, but you, maybe you could use the um, Malay term and put marijuana in quotes. Or, I mean, I think there's different ways of, of, of figuring things out uh, uh, while pushing the um, language a little bit. But is there any other questions? Uh, Hi. Uh, so, so regarding to where you say like um, trans, uh, not translating the word food, and then you saying hating the word of uh, rainbow, I which I share the sentiment of it's an ugly word. Uh, like maybe the thought is that I'm thinking why we assume that these things can be or should be translated. Like the word rainbow itself, for example, maybe doesn't work that well into English because it's an ugly word, but it itself might be a beautiful word in another language. So why not just keep that, Latin, that word in its, in its original language and then maybe like explain it to me. Like why we assume that everything is translatable? Like, yeah. So I'm going to answer um, before I pass it to the panelists. Because uh, that was exactly the problem that Jenny mentioned in, um, in my translation of Kule Grassi's work, that there are a lot of rainbows in his work. And he used different words for that. So it wasn't just Palangi. He writes primarily in Malay, but he also weaves in indigenous languages. But in this particular case, he used two Malay words. One was Palangi. Um, the other one was Biang Lala, which is an old Malay word. It's an old Malay Indonesian word that is, has almost fallen out of use, I think, in, uh, in everyday language. So I chose to keep Biang Lala. And in a few, I think the first draft, I had translated it into rainbow. And then actually, in, in rereading that, it, it was really missing because Biang Lala itself is such an incredible word. Um, so we actually decided to retain the word Biang Lala. And I think, I think there's maybe one place or two places that I translated it into rainbow. And the rest of it, I just kept. Um, in the original language. And I did that the same with many of the indigenous phrases. So that I actually kept entire phrases in Iban and Kayan and Kalavit, just because the sound and the presence of that language itself, I think, was, was very important. Yeah. Bianglala is, is rainbow. It's a, it's a different, but it really has a different sense. It's not the kind of rainbow that Jenny was describing. I mean, Bianglala really. For me, it sounds more, um, it sounds older, it sounds more even mysterious in a way, and, and at the same time, more earthy as well. Is it, is it more towards like uh, the thinking that the word rendezvous and the meaning of meetup and converging is all the same, but we use it in different contexts because they carry different kind of weight and and, uh, con and you know, kind of weight and, and formality of a sort. So yeah, maybe that's exactly why we don't just simply translate everything, just because we can translate it. But we should keep like the word uh, schadenfreude or something, just because it's too messy to translate it into English. And I think that just to, I think that more writers in the US are writing in multiple languages at once. So it's, it it's transcends translation, I think this, 
and reflects how we live, you know, thinking in many languages at once and living in many languages at once. So there's a lot more multilingual translations and multilingual writing. We have time for just a few more, like a two, two or three more. Yeah. Um, sorry, Cal my name is Calvin from Ipo as well. Um, this is not so much a question as it is an opinion, I suppose, from personal experience. I'm an amateur writer and poet. So recent, some one, two years ago, I think, about I read, I actually wrote a Malay sajak, which is kind of like a modern Malay poem. There's no rhyming structure or anything, so I, I hate rhyming, so that, that's good enough for me. So the, basically the title of it was Biarlah Ku Hilang, or it, it Let Me Disappear. It was a very personal thing, but as if I revisit that kind of that piece after I've written it, and I, you know, because my primary language is English, but Malay is also at forty of mine. But we, if I we've ever revisited again, looking at the whole context, uh, then and now, it kind of probably kind of feels like the meaning to it has kind of faded over time. Perhaps maybe because as you grow as a person, you kind of distance yourself from the past and you move on with the future and. So, uh, for me, I guess the whole context when it comes to translating sometimes, when, especially if you are aware of the language, you know the language, is that I guess in, as you, it, it's, it's kind of like when, when you write your own, even your own mother tongue as well, I suppose, in that you, you know the whole context. You may understand some of it, or at least some of the underlying uh, meaning, but sometimes when, when it comes to different people and even yourself when you revisit these things or when you have people new to this uh, piece and then they, you get all these different opinions and perspectives, it, it kind of just adds on, I guess, to the... There's a chaos in it, but at the same time, there's also a f underlying beauty to how we interpret something in a kind of sense. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, I think this is more of a logistic question more than like the technique of translations. So I'm actually curious about the role of editor because it's not just between the writers and the translator, right? You work together on this beautiful thing and then you're so confident with it and you bring it to an editor and he's like, he or she is like, this is not okay. You need to wipe this out. You need to change this. Maybe some suggestions. Some editors are more intrusive and more aggressive than others. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, how do they, in your personal experience, because, and especially for those of you who work both as translator and editor, how has the experience of beauty and chaos reflected in episodes working with editors? Working with me is beautiful. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Pauline, I don't think it was chaotic. Um, I mean, I, I run a really small press and I only take things that are already beautiful, that I already love. So I don't think, like, I think that as an editor working on a translation, there's less play there. I mean, the original exists, that's not gonna change, especially if, you know, the writers, the original author isn't involved, like with our first book, she wasn't involved at all, which was fine, I mean. And so I think that I guess, I think it's hard when you're working on individual translations to see the book as a whole. That's something an editor can really help with and have that distance and think about marketing and how, how like, also because 
I'm American and I'm in an American context and that's what I read. I can also see how things might sound good in one regional English, but in American English, like those sorts of things. But I don't think of it as an antagonistic relationship at all. I mean, I think it's a creative, wonderful, I, I found it to be wonderful at least. <laughs> and, um, and I mean, you're creating this beautiful thing together. It's a book. You know, it should be a collaborative. I mean, all I think translation at heart is collaborative. You know, and um, that's one of the many joys of it. Um, yeah, I could say something about that. That maybe um, with with your experiences here, uh, with your publishers, do you have anything to say about uh, uh, that or no? I'm, uh, uh, or if you don't have to, but I was just curious, uh, maybe that would help. It's, this is normal, typical relationship. It's like we discuss and we lay out few words. And as we go along, we see that the language is very fluid and you can say things without saying things and you can say other things and it means exactly the opposite. So I like having a discussion with most of my editor because it, it's a humbling experience that you actually don't know stuff, and now you do. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that, that, that can be played with. You feel like a kid's in a playground, and I, I, I like that discussion session with, with all the editors. I mean, I could speak as a, I mean, just real quick, as an editor as, as well, and since Elliot wanted me to, to talk, I'm going to embarrass him. For, 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 so Elliot Weinberger um, is an essayist and um, translator, and he's been publishing with New Directions for many years, but his first book was with Octavio Paz, and he's published many essays. But his idea of, of writing, and I would say even translation, or one idea of it, is a very Flaubertian kind of idea of, of, of being so concise and careful with the language. And so as an editor, you kind of see that in the context of the writer and the translator. And so there's very, really very little that um, I really feel you know, I need to do uh, personally because uh, you could see the work. Um, but there's been other translations as well where it needs more work. And it's hard to really talk about um, the extent of what you're asking because it, it almost um, sounds like you had a bad experience <laughs> or something, or maybe not. No, but, but, um, but I think it depends on the translation. And I think you, uh, if, you, if you trust the person, the editor you're, you're, you're working with, um, I mean, in the end, uh, when we consider something to publish, uh, it's not just me, it's like a group of editors. And once we say, oh, we want to do this, there's a trust enough at, to a point of the translation so that even if I'm, say, uh, asking questions about various lines or sentences and things like that, if they're able to give me a good reason of why something is like that and it's not you know, grammatically wrong or if it makes sense, then then I then it's for, as an editor I think it's your I just give them let them do what they want to do you know really and that's um, but other other times like Jenny was saying if you if you have a better sense of the, of the whole of um, or of a paragraph or of a line and uh, of in a poem and 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 I think you you have more leeway to to suggest suggest things um, so Kelly do you, you have a question or. I just wanted to add to that. You know, I'm, I was an editor for um, about 11 years, and I learned. I, I worked for a publisher that um, uh, published Philippe Claudel and Carlos Ruiz Safon, and they were the original publishers of Lolita. 
uh, many years ago. So I had I served a long apprenticeship under two, you know, well actually a, a variety of, of editors who um, would, you know, edit these translations sometimes quite, you know, intensively. But then we also published. Um, Oh, who's the guy, the chap, I can't remember his name, but he, you know, he would deliver his, his translations just note perfect. Um, so I agree with you, it, it depends totally on the translation and, and the translator, and it is a collaborative experience. And at the end of the day, you know, as an editor, you, you want to do the best for the book and for the, the translator and the original author, and it's, everybody has the same aim, and that is to make the, best, the book as best it can possibly you know, a lot of translations come from books that aren't ever edited in their original language. Chinese is rarely edited in its original language. So, yeah, it's about collaboration. Yeah. We have time for just one more. Is it, oh. Hi, um, I'm Mofa, and my question is for Fahmi because he said he likes translating poetry. Uh, doesn't it, doesn't translating poetry depend so much on the translator's understanding of the poem? And to what extent in your work uh, do you translate word to word or do you prefer to recreate the, the, the meaning or the, the, the wording of, of the poem? Uh, okay, this is my experience translating poetry. Mm, of course, as the first read, I just read it, and it's very literal. It's, it's, it's there. And after that, what I do is I study about the author. I study about the time, I study about the culture, a little bit of everything, enough to know where does the author live, what does he think, and da-da-da-da-da. And having that information helps me to create some sort of mirror image of him speaking to me. Now that I heard him speaking, I can tell other people what he speaks of. And, and it's, it's, so, it's so easy if you work with living poet, and it's so easy to, if the poet is passed away, you can do anything, and you feel like a fraud again, and this is me. But when you have living poet, you can discuss what does it mean, and sometimes, interestingly enough, there are certain things becomes serendipity, that the author means that thing, and when we discuss, the author change the meaning too. So it, it means that one word doesn't carry a meaning, one word carry a life. So what authors did during that time of writing it, it can mean differently from the same person itself. So I believe that there will never be a finished translations of poetry, and that process the translating process is what we enjoyed much because the word doesn't carry a meaning, and not only a meaning, but, but a life itself. So that, that, that's what I feel when, when I translate poetry. Um, yeah, I guess I, I've, my thoughts on it have, have changed as I've moved through my you know, my very short translating career so far. Um, and probably if I live to be older, it'll, they'll keep changing. But I think I used to be more literal. Um, and it's after working with Norman on his poetry. And sorry, I, I, I mentioned Norman like all the time. But, <laughs> but um, that I, I realized that there is a way to be faithful. It, there is a way to be faithful and more faithful to 
the poem by diverging from the literal. And I think it took me collaborating with him to realize the truth of that. And I think before, it would have been very difficult for me to conceive of that, especially because um, I'm not an extremely good poet myself. So. Thank you. Um, all right, so thanks very much. I think, um, I think that's all the time we have, but thank you for coming.